Hello and welcome to Inside McLaren Applied. My name is Freya Brolsma and in this brand new podcast series, we go behind the scenes to explore more about this brilliant, innovative business. In this episode, James Baldwin and I speak to Nick Fry, McLaren Applied's non-executive chairman. We speak to Nick, who also has a famous Formula One world championship, about his vision for the business, how he got into motorsport and all about that very famous one pound. Let's get into our chat with Nick Fry. Well, Nick, great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. I mean, it is your podcast after all, McLaren Applied. It is such a brilliant brand and you've got so many wonderful things that you're going to do with it, I'm sure. But before we get to that point, what I'd really like to do is go right back to your very beginning um, I know that you probably had an absolute fascination for motorsport. So, of course, like everyone who has an absolute passion and, and wonderful want to do something with their life, you went and studied something completely different, <laughs> economics, economic geography. What is that all about? Well, I, I, I can't explain this bit of it, which is a very good start to a podcast. Um, <laughs> you know, my, 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 my father works in, um, in Fleet Street uh, for national newspapers in the UK, um, but not not as a journalist on the, um, the the administration side, but it gave him access to um, tickets for sports events, and he just loved sports. I mean, it didn't really matter what it was, whether it was golf, whether it was uh, soccer, or whatever. He he'd be happy to to watch it and go to events. So, you know, I, I've got two younger brothers, and he would take us to. Uh, uh, soccer. Um, we lived in South London, so uh, invariably Chelsea or uh, or Fulham. Although he was an Arsenal fan, but taking young kids across uh, across London w- was uh, too complicated for that. So we went to one of the South London teams, and he also took me to uh, and, and my brothers to motor racing events. And I have no idea. I cannot explain this. There's no history of. Uh, you know, love of cars or motorsport in my family, but that was the one I took to. And, uh, you know, I was one of those sad kids that, uh, you know, they, they're sort of the, the doyen of the, uh, the publications, because obviously the internet wasn't around in those days, um, was, a, was a magazine called Autosport, which came out on Thursday mornings. But uh, I would cycle repeatedly to the local uh, newspaper shop on, on Wednesday afternoons after school and pop in because uh, I, I found out that the magazine was actually delivered usually about five thirty, six o'clock on a Wednesday night. So uh, I would cycle up and down to Roy's news agents um, to uh, to see if it had come in yet and get my copy of uh, Autosport. And, uh, you know, again, in those days, there was very little on the, the airwaves um, about motorsports. I mean, a Grand Prix would happen, but it wasn't on television. And uh, there was a, uh, a, a newscast at 7 o'clock on Sunday nights, um, and, and a guy called Simon Taylor, who uh, is still around as a fantastic journalist, used to do a very crackly report from uh, some far-flung part. And that was, that, that was all there was. I mean, if it, it was rarely reported on the news, but I took to it and uh, been fortunate enough to be involved in the, uh, the car industry gen- generally for the last, uh, dare I say, 40-odd so years. And I've had uh, just a fantastic time. So uh, it's been great. Is there a moment from your youth that you can pinpoint where motorsport became it? Because going and seeing Chelsea would have been absolutely incredible as well. 
but I can imagine there's probably something where you went, okay, yeah, this this is really it. Yeah, I you know, in, in those days, um, and again, I'm I'm really dating myself here, but there wasn't just the Grand Prix in the UK. You know, there was things called the you know the race of champions, or there was always a sort of a a pre-season race, usually at uh, at Brands Hatch, and you know, frequently it was god awful. I mean, it was uh, invariably in kind of March in the UK, which meant it was uh, freezing cold. You know, I remember sitting in the car after you know watching with my father, sort of trying to defrost after uh, you know. So I, I, I guess I must be you know some sort of you know masochist, but. Um, you know, watching people, you know, like Jackie Stewart. And uh, in those days, there was something called Formula 5000. So they had uh, five-litre V8s, but they used to race against the Formula 1 cars. Um, and so you had these sort of massive rumbling V8s with uh, people like uh, Peter Gethin, who I later did a bit of work with, fantastic guy, uh, racing against Formula 1 cars with people like, you know, long, long, long lost, I'm afraid, people like Joe Sifford and... Uh, you know, Jackie X, but I, my, my dad used to, you know, get me into the paddock. And in those days you could, you could just walk up to the cars and, you know, you have a sort of a Ferrari, you know, a 312 B2 or something like that with, uh, you know, people like uh, Jackie X was, uh, was one of their drivers, Clay Regazzoni. And you could literally, you now as a kid, you know, stand next to the cockpit and look in and, you know, and, and there was foam, you know, literally bits of foam to hold the driver in. And, uh, you know, I, I think it was a combination of the, the glamour, the, you know, the usual things that probably would appeal to the kid, the technology of it, but just, uh, you know, but th- th- those days probably in the, the, the 1970s were, um, or what captured by imagination. And of course, you know, it was incredibly dramatic and incredibly dangerous. And, and sadly in those days, uh, you know, at least a couple of drivers lost their life. Uh, and that wasn't clearly an attraction, but, uh, you know, it, it w- w- really showed the, the drama of the whole thing, which was, uh, you know, just, just something which captured my imagination. So you mentioned you've had a very long and amazing experience in in motorsport, generally speaking, with I'm sure some just fantastic um, memories. Spent a lot of time at Ford coming out of university um, with a whole host of roles. Um, took you through to Aston Martin and then came Pro Drive, which ultimately brought WRC into your remit. How does that change things when it comes to sports, sport performance? Um, how does that change the work? Um, I, I, I think the the thing that I've managed to grasp. Um, through a combination of working for big companies like Ford, where you know it's slow and it's bureaucratic and it's um, uh, cumbersome, um, with small or relatively small companies in 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 you know, Rally with ProDrive with uh, uh, with 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 McLaren with Braun with all the the Formula One stuff I've done is yeah you can do both you can be you can be rigorous and you can be process driven and you can uh, you know, develop some really high quality products, but it's also possible to do it very quickly. Mm. Um, and, and combining the two is the secrets. And that's why companies like McLaren applies and, uh, you know, our competitors exist because, you know, we're a lot more nimble. Um, how, how, do, how, do, how do we do stuff quickly, but still do it well? the root of it is really clever people mm. um, and actually uh, organizing it such that you give those people the latitude to show what they can do. 
and and so it's 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 all about clever people uh, allowing them to be innovative um allowing them freedom but giving them maximum support so i mean what what i try and do no no one likes anyone looking over their shoulder the whole time you know why would you hire someone who is exceptional at their job and then you know, uh, agree with them what they're supposed to be delivering and then keep asking them after every five minutes um, what they're doing. Now, I'm lucky and I can't do that anyway because my degree's in economics. So talking to our electronics engineers here, you know, I can add no value whatsoever in terms of, uh, you know, designing a uh, engine control units. But, uh, you know, what I can help, help them with is... Uh, is just those every day, you know, give them the resource, give them the equipment, give them the, you know, the, the talk through the direction, the strategy. Um, so I can, I can help all on, if you like, all the admin side, but I can let them do their, 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 their job. And that means that people are generally happy mm. because they're doing something really interesting and they're, you know, they know what they've got to deliver and they can show their skills and they're working forum with other great people so combining the 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 great things from motorsport with the uh, the things you do in big companies and have to do to you know meet the law you know a lot lot of what we do is safety critical so you you've got to be sensible about it but uh, you know this is a a, a both organization not an or organization yeah you've hit some of the kind of the magic conditions there when it comes to things like employee engagement you've got that sense of empowerment but then you've got the support mechanisms and obviously processes to make sure that that empowerment is actually something that is conducted in a safe way and we saw some of that yesterday and people actually mentioning that in terms of the ownership they feel over this some of the work that they're doing so really interesting to see how that's played out yeah it's it's i mean we're relatively small so we've got uh you know 200 and high, high, high 200s in terms of numbers of people. Um, and we need more, um, you know, we're, we're growing fast, but it's a very flat organization. You know, I'm the chairman. Uh, and then we've got, you know, half a dozen senior people who run uh, each of the departments and we're all in a you know, big open plan office, uh, on a couple of floors, um, in the middle of Woking, um, you know, relatively accessible to London and lovely countryside around. It's a, a great place to work, but everyone's got access to everyone else. So if someone's, you know, got an issue which uh, isn't being fixed, um, you know, I'm sitting, uh, you know, probably 20 metres away and, uh, you know, we can have a, a chat and it doesn't matter who it is. And that's that's the nature of, I think, great organisations and and. You know, people get on with what they're supposed to do, but if they do need uh, help and assistance uh, to achieve whatever they're supposed to be achieving, then, you know, it's, it's easy for them to do that. And that sort of, I, th- I think openness is, uh, is, is a key characteristic and great communication, which you get from being close to each other and talking a lot, uh, you know, just, just makes uh, everyone's life easy, easier um, and, and, and helps the wheels go around, literally. One of the things I can pick up walking around Woking is that everyone knows McLaren. Everyone knows McLaren Applied. There is this vibe here which is from just from a general public point of view, which is obviously very focused and hopefully supportive uh, in that sense. But for you, you've been across so many different versions of motorsport and 
I know what it's like going to a Formula One paddock, which is you know, everyone's very focused and, and the, the winning mentality there is absolutely there with all of the teams, all 10 teams. Uh, and But you go to Extreme E where everyone is there for a slightly different purpose, of course. It's about sustainability, climate change and diversity. And everyone's really enjoying being there. The, the paddock or the service park is incredibly different. What's it like for you to have gone from somewhere like ProDrive and yes, WRC, Peter Solberg, some incredible names that you've worked with in that space and of course, Formula One, Jensen Button, Rubens and some other absolutely epic people too. How does that colour what you do and the direction that you now want to take McLaren Applied in? I, I think the, the transition, in fact, between WRC and Formula One was literally frightening and, and I had n- no idea really if the truth be told, what I was getting myself into, and some might say I had no idea, but I kind of picked it up fairly quick, fairly quickly. <laughs> and so, you know, it, and, and WRC was just great fun, and um, you know, the camaraderie within the rally community, certainly in those days, and I'm sure it's the same now, was fantastic. Um, and you spent a lot of time with each other because you know when an event, you know, lasted you know, three days, four days, um, and and you're in a environment where the cars go off into the woods and uh, you know you're left with the other teams and in those days uh, you know it was it was all the big names you know Ford were involved Toyota was in, in involved Citroen uh, Peugeot etc with uh, you know the, the, the people like the you know, McRae's and obviously uh, you know uh, Carlos Sainz and uh, you know just just fantastic uh, drivers and you know with with Subaru we were very successful and you know I was very fortunate in that uh, you know we won the the, the the rally championship with uh, with Richard Burns, um, long lost uh, very very sadly, but um, you know a really great driver, and then um, uh, with Petter uh, Solberg, and so you know I understood you know w- with my automotive background on kind of what it takes to win, um, but then you go into Formula One. I remember walking into the uh, the back of the garage in uh, my first race was in. Uh, in Malaysia, two thousand one or two thousand two, and you know it was oh my laws, what have I? There was more people, more computer screens um, than I had ever seen before in my life, with more very capable people. And I expected people in Formula One to be good, but actually, until you get on the inside, it's really difficult to communicate how good they are. And it doesn't matter whether they're in marketing or whether they're in, uh, you know, body engineer or electronics engineer or the driver, that the level of uh, capability and the level of teamwork is beyond certainly anything I've seen. I suspect it's it's beyond anything which exists in the world. Um, you know, the, the, the closeness of the relationships, the, uh, you know, what you have to decision making in a short period of time. Um, and what I, I, I hope that we bring in, McLaren applied is because of you know that great background in 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 McLaren and the obviously the company started as as just in inverted commas a Formula One team but has expanded massively from there is that ethos and that you know the desire to do the best we possibly can that uh, ability to work in a, uh, a a relatively small team of people you know with our clients with each other and make decisions very quickly. Um, you know, delegated authority, and and I think the combination of those sort of abilities and those sort of skills um, are really what makes not not just us, but a lot of the motorsport companies or companies that come out of motorsport in the UK 
very special on a global basis. And I, and I think, uh, you know, it is on a global basis. I mean, we've got 40 odd thousand people who live you know, and work relatively close to here who are, you know, top of their game in advanced engineering. And we're, we're, we're very pleased to be part of that. You've spoken about Formula One. Uh, and one of the things that I think is great about your story is that there is no such thing as an overnight success. And certainly even coming from WRC to a team like BAR, who, to be honest, weren't really doing all that well, had struggled for quite some time. Uh, but And it was a bit of a change for you, of course, coming from these WRC titles too. But it wasn't an enormous brand. Yes, okay, it was a tobacco company and it was a, a sort of a, a worldwide known brand, but not from an F1 ownership point of view. What was it like for you for the people management side, motivating these guys, organizing, restructuring and, and trying to push them into a direction to what would ultimately lead to some really good success? Yeah, I, I think the first thing is that, um, you know, unless it's a complete flash in the pan and just a bit of luck, to get sustainable success is a really long haul. And, you know, if you look, you know, pe- people, you know, a music band suddenly, you know, is very successful and, uh, well, wherever they come from, the reality is, you know, they were in the back of a transit van going around the clubs of the Northern England for yeah. 10 years learning their trades. And, you know, I, I think we all have the same experience. You know, you, it, usually it doesn't come from nowhere. I mean, occasionally it does, but that's the exception. Usually it's a whole bunch of hard work. And if you look at, you know, just people like Michael Schumacher and Ross that went to uh, to Ferrari, it took them about five years to, uh, to get it going uh, properly. I mean, these are, it's complicated. There are Big bits of kits. I mean, at um, at the BAR, then 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 Honda. You know, we had to build a uh, you know a proper wind tunnel, and that's a three four year program to do that. And then you've got to get it working properly, etc. And there's so many different facets to it, which are long lead time. And hiring people is really difficult because people who want to work in Formula One, you know, want to work with the best team. So you know, when you're coming twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth, you know, on the grizz it's much more difficult to hire, you know, first-class people because the, the best people want to win and they can do the same the same job anywhere. So it really is kind of step-by-step. Step. So, you know, you know, you're very generous. I mean, we were pretty miserable when I, um, I, I, I joined. And, uh, you know, we didn't really have the processes or the systems. I mean, we still had steel, steel suspension when others have moved to carbon fibre. You know, to be frank, you know, we couldn't even make two cars the same. I mean, we had, you know, the noses, which, uh, you know, come on and off cars, you know, weren't interchangeable. There was one for one side of the garage and one for the other because, you know, we couldn't make consistently, uh, uh, you know, cars that were the same as each other. So it was that sort of level of capability. But, you know, some great people. And I think, you know, people think that the, you know, the success over the last decade of the team is somehow, you know, new people who have come in or, uh, you know, but it's the same people who were, the same people who were deemed hopeless in, uh, you know, 2001, 2002 are the same people that, you know, 20 years later have won multiple world championships. And, you know, people like Ron Meadows, who uh, uh, is the team manager, was team manager before I started, uh, you know, and he's still the team manager doing the same job 20 years later. Andrew Shovlin, chief race engineer, has been doing the same job for donkey's years at an incredibly high level. James Fowles, who does the strategy, same person who was, uh, you know, we brought in to do the strategy, uh, you know, all those years ago. And these people who have just developed with the the the, the, the team and, uh, 
you know, have, have you know, done incredibly well, but it, it, it takes time. And, um, you know, we, 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 I started, I think, as I say, early 2000s, um, 2004, we had a good season, um, 2006, we won for the first time, although, you know, in Hungary with Jensen, but it was pretty fortuitous. It was in the West and, uh, lots of, we did a great job. He did a great job. We did a great job uh, under the circumstances, but, you know, we weren't going to win under, you know, dry conditions and, uh, a regular, a regular race. And of course, you know, it took us, um, yeah, then seven and eight weren't particularly good. And, uh, you know, we, we, we really threw in the towel for the 2008 season and uh, put all the money and time and effort into uh, the following year where there was a regulation change. And, uh, you know, we hit the jackpot, but we, we yeah, it was hitting the jackpot after best part of a decade of uh, hard work. And, and going back to your question, the secret to it in my book is always giving people light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, you, you've got to, you know, why is it going to be better? Why is next year going to be better than this year? Well, what next year is going to be better than this year because we're building a new wind tunnel because, you know, we've hired Ross Braun because, you know, we've invested in this, that and the other. And these are super clever people and you, you can't get by with BS. I mean, it's, uh, you've got to give, you know, proper reason why the next year should be better. And behind the scenes, which no one ever sees from the outside, you know, the effort that I and others were putting in to find 50 million to build a wind tunnel, find 10 million to, uh, you know, improve the machine shop, find uh, enough money for, you know, massive computational fluid dynamic capability. This is proper engineering and you can't get by on a wing, wing and a prayer and putting these things in place is difficult and it takes time. And, you know, you've got to put up with the flack that, you know, when you're, when you're coming, uh, you know, 10th, but still trying to put forward an optimistic uh, point of view, you get kind of ridiculed a bit from the outside and you kind of just got to get up, get on and, and, and play your game. And if you do that, then, uh, you know, I think as we showed, you get great success. Absolutely. And you mentioned um, the just truly international or global nature of, of Formula One, which is right up there when it comes to international sports and just the true global nature of it. Honda eventually bought the team out for what turned out to be a pretty short stint as a constructor. And there's been a lot said, I suppose, about different ways of working and there's going to be lots of different um, potential culture clashes um, that, that can happen, especially in the world of sport. Uh, we've got the English, Japanese working together. Were there any experiences from your end when it came to not gelling so well when it comes to those different ways of working? Yeah, uh, lots. I mean, it, it was really difficult, especially when um, – one side, as in our case, Honda provides the engine, and the if you like the English side um, provide the chassis. Because and engineers always think they've done the best job personally, and the reason they're not winning is it's someone else's fault. And so you know, and Formula One, this is not just us. This is this has gone through the history of Formula One. You know, when a team's not going well well enough, the the people who design the chassis say the engine's not powerful enough, and the people who design the uh, the engine say, well, it's because your chassis is useless, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, that trade off was um, was was always difficult, um, and 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 also you know people are in it for different things. You know, Honda you know, quite reasonably, and many other car companies uh, have taken the same approach, wanted to develop technology which could be useful for them in, in, in the car company. So we actually did, did spend enormous amounts of time and money, you know, working on stuff which, frankly, 
to make a Formula One car go faster was pretty useless. And we spent vast amounts of money, but it's not yet. Money is easy to come by, you know, in relatively what's difficult to come by is time and skill and, you know, the, the people side of it. And um, when you've only got a, a, a limited supply of people, you've only got so much time to do testing. You've only got so much time to develop and build the car when you're, diverted onto some other projects then it costs you so there was there was always that tension but on the other hand you know you've got to trade that off against um you know uh, a, a, a massively loyal you know group of shareholders who wanted to win who were prepared to invest huge amounts of money and frankly the the basis of you know the, the winningest team of all time um well, you know which now obviously is, is called mercedes was the investment that Honda put in over, you know, not just their period of ownership, but, you know, they supplied the engine to, uh, to British American racing. So they were putting in a ton of money and efforts and resource and, you know, all those resources are still there and obviously they've been supplemented and improved and what have you, but that, that was the bedrock. And so you say, you've got to take the rough with the smooth. You can't just take the good bits, you know, yes, the cultural side of it and the, uh, the 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 objective side of it was really difficult. But on the other hand, it also enabled us to to build a team which uh, you know won the world championship, drivers and constructors for the first time in two thousand and nine. And it was on the back of you know Honda's investments and um, you know the tech that they provided to the company. So it, it was not a uh, you know out of nowhere. It was uh, it, it was a, a lot of hard work and a lot of investment by Honda, which then flowed through and. You know, the wind tunnel and the other stuff I'm speaking about clearly is still being used today. Quite funny to think that Honda last year beat themselves really <laughs> effectively, yeah. the bedrock of Mercedes and their now relationship with Red Bull. The night is often darkest before the dawn. It's 2008, GFC hits and Honda pulls out. You and Ross are tasked with effectively trying to save not only the team and of course the drivers to to have a drive but people's livelihoods there is a whole factory of people back home trying to figure out what they're going to do next looking for that leadership to try and give them that sense of comfort i suppose uh to try and work out what's next for them that's a dark winter i can imagine how did that rank for you in terms of your stress levels? And was there anything that you found out about yourself and about Ross perhaps as well in that time? I, I, I think you, um, until you put it in that situation, you don't realise, and I think this goes for you know most human beings, how much you know fortitude and determination you have if uh, – you know your back's against the wall, and you, you know you can see that in the the, the, the dreadful circumstances in uh, Ukraine at the moment. That people, you know, find things f- out about their their resilience, and you know, and I don't mean to trivialise this, but you know, you just get on with the job. I mean, th- th- there's not a huge amount of magic to this. You know, when um, you know the um, the buildings falling down, there's not much, you know. You don't, you don't need much strategy. You know, if your neighbor's house is on fire, you know, you know, you don't think about it too much. You, you know, you, you go around and you do what you can to help them. And uh, it was the same on a slightly bigger scale in, in this situation. And I think the bedrock of it was the fact that we've been through tough times and we were a team. And, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, 
you know, Ross and I had incredibly remunerative contracts. And, you know, if, if we'd have been made unemployed and the team had gone down, we'd have, you know, done very well out of it to, to, to pay us off and all the other stuff that uh, contracts give you. But I don't think there was even a moment's thought of walking away from the situation. It was, look, we've got 700 people um, and, and we've got to try and get out, get out of this somehow. And, you know, and even the, what I just spoken about in the last minutes wasn't something you sat down with a piece of paper and said, you know, we have to do blah, 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 blah. It was, you know, we're together, you know, we're in a tricky situation and, you know, it needs some leadership. And, uh, you know, I remember after Honda, you know, told us um, that they were pulling out, we went, Ross and I went back to the factory and, uh, you know, we didn't have any fancy facilities. We, uh, you know, got everyone in the uh, the race bays, um, and you know there were some s- stairs which went up to the production offices. And Ross and I sort of stood at the top of the stairs and said, "You know, this has happened. It's uh, it's uh, it's clearly not great, but uh, you know we're going to find a solution. We're going to we, we will get out of this." And uh, um, and then every day was a complete roller coaster. I mean, uh, Ross, I remember one morning. Uh, coming in and uh, saying to me, this doesn't do much for your libido, does it? And, uh, you know, and, <laughs> the answer was it didn't because, you know, and every day was, you know, one day, you know, you were elated because you thought you were making a bit of progress mm. and someone was going to invest in the team or whatever. And the next day, you know, Honda were going to really pull the plug because they, they were very good. So they, they gave us a little bit of latitude. I mean, we uh, were told at the beginning of December, 2008, that they, they, they needed to get out and uh, in in the end, they uh, they helped us and gave us you know money, which uh, lasted for about three months to just to give us a bit of time to uh, to find an alternative because you know they're a they're a great company they've got morals and ethics and as as most big companies have and you know they you know, wanted to try and find a solution they didn't want to have seven hundred people at a, a dreadful time to uh, to be unemployed so but it was you know. It, I think what you find out about yourself is is that you, uh, you know, if you're very driven and you're competitive and you've got, uh, you know, you're focused, then you're surrounded by good people. Then it's just a matter of any other, it's like any other problem. It's just on a bigger scale. Let's find a solution and, uh, you know, you just go at it. You paid a pound. So did you both pay 50 pence each or did you pay the pound and Ross invoiced you or how did it, how did it work? Cause it's like the most th- famous pound in motorsport history. <laughs> yeah. I think actually it was, I think it was actually Ross's pound, uh, which is, uh, <laughs> but, 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 but Honda still got it. Um, you know, our, our Japanese uh, boss, Mr. Oshima, uh, the last time we spoke to him, which is a few years ago now, they still had the pounds, That's which, brilliant. uh, you know, so as you say, it was the most famous pound and, you know, it, you know, I, I, you, you could, it's easy to laugh about now because everything turned out right, but that the, the reality was, you know, no one gets out of those problems, especially in Formula One when you're up against, uh, you know, the Ferraris and the Red Bulls, and there's, you know, two guys who, uh, you know, we we had a bit of legacy money from uh, from Honda, but basically, I mean, the the most likely outcome was that we were going to go bust at the end of. 2009. I mean, we had enough money to see us through to the end of the 2009 season. And we kind of budgeted that, uh, 
you know, we were going to go bust at the end of 2009. And, you know, we needed to pay off the uh, the people on the same terms that Honda would have paid them off at the end of uh, 2008. So we put aside, you know, the money that uh, would have been needed for redundancy, et cetera, et cetera. And the rest was what we had. And, the, you know, the rest was very little in, in reality. I mean, we, we uh, you know, I love budget airlines, but, uh, you know, we win a Grand Prix and then Ross and I would be literally in, you know, row 34D with all the fans at 11 o'clock at night back from a Grand Prix, which the fans thought was great and it was actually quite enjoyable. And you'd be queuing up at one o'clock in the morning at Luton Airport trying to get through, uh, you know, a customs, uh, you know, whereas uh, the other team principals were uh, going back on private jets. So, but it, it, it made it fun and we were all in it together and, uh, you know, obviously we, uh, we, we were successful, but it, it was... You can laugh about it after the events, but the most likely outcome of the mess we were in was that, uh, you know, we were still going to go under, but uh, it shows what you can do. Yeah, like you said, you did achieve what was, in fact, very unlikely, but got there, got the car on track and turns out to be pretty good, which is a bit of an understatement. It was very good. (laughs) Um, But I'm sure you're still pretty up against it when it comes to keeping everything ticking over in the background. Did that add pressure to that situation where you realised there were actually potential results on the table as well? Yeah, I mean, again, I don't want to trivialise it, but you, winning races was critical. I mean, at the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, no one wanted to invest in a Formula One team. I mean, not yeah, an unsuccessful Formula One team at that. I mean, we, you know, weren't weren't we won a race by that stage, and we'd we'd. Uh, had some reasonable results from time to time, but we we weren't the glittering prize. Let's put it uh, let's let's put it that way. Um, and then winning changes everything. There is there is absolutely no doubt. You start winning, especially on the scale that we won. Everyone suddenly wants to be your friend, mm. and uh, you know uh, some saw it early. Richard Branson, to his great credit, came in very early. Saw maybe there was an opportunity. You know, gave us money that was 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 much needed, um, but for what he got, frankly, he got again one of the, the bargains of the century. Probably, uh, you know, winning in Melbourne first and second with with Richard there. You know, we were on the front and the back page of every newspaper in the world because it was so unlikely, and it was a good news story at the the the, the, the depths of the financial crisis. Um, but you know, Richard and the Virgin Brands was great to uh, to help us, but. Uh, you know, once we got a bit of momentum, then you know people started to be uh, to be interested. But um, you know, actually, how it turned out was uh, as 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 is frequently the case, not what we expected. I mean, we we knew we probably couldn't go on as a private team, um, or you know, we we were. I think Ross and I were realistic enough to realise that, despite the huge success in two thousand nine, lightning doesn't strike twice and uh, you know when you're up against the money of uh, of, of, of red bull you know, that corporate money you know the ferraris of the world the bmws at the time toyota still around you know where you're going to be able to win consistently and we 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 had spent no money on the following year at all i mean this was a one shot and so we we hit the bullseye you know, twice over, but uh, it, it wasn't going to be repeated. And, you know, clearly it wasn't because even even after we had the uh, the Mercedes investment, uh, you know, 2010, 2011 were pretty difficult because uh, even with, uh, with with some really good drivers, we 
we just hadn't put the the time and effort in because we just spent everything we we possibly could time and effort on uh, on winning in 2009 and you know we we didn't expect mercedes to want to invest in the team i mean they uh, it's ironic that i'm sitting now here at mclaren because uh, clearly they'd had a long and very successful partnership um and uh you know supplied us at, with engines very kindly because they didn't have to as a customer team so we mm-hmm. we paid I think it was 8 million euros uh, was uh, the cost um, yeah, as a customer. We never expected to beat the the kind of the works team, which was McLaren. And uh, yeah, it was even less likely. One of the, there were a couple of kind of strings to the deal. Uh, one is they had to approve all our sponsors, which was kind of having McLaren it, it essentially approve sponsors that a competitive team was going to get was kind of, although it was Mercedes that actually were doing the work. But, you know, we, we had to go to them for, for permission for sponsors, and we also had to go for them to them for permission for change of control, which is pretty normal. So any outside investment had to have uh, Mercedes imp- uh, approval because they said, "Well, it's our brand, it's our reputation, so we don't want you kind of, you know, going off with someone inappropriate or p- being with people that we don't like." So, you know, we had some investors, and uh, myself and the finance director went to Stuttgart and said, "Look." Uh, this was about June or July of, of, of that year and, you know, sat with their senior people and said, look, uh, we've got some investors and, uh, you know, we'd like permission to uh, uh, talk to them. And completely out of the blue, they said, well, you know, what about us? And uh, it, it was literally as, as shocking as, you know, that wow. to us, which was, you know, we knew that maybe the relationship with McLaren wasn't all it could be. And, and, and Ron Dennis is a fantastic entrepreneur, but, Maybe I'd rubbed them up the wrong way a few times, and uh, uh, you know it was it was a big surprise to us that they were interested in us, and you know, but that's that's what happens, and uh, they uh, and the uh, Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund, a company called Arbar, um, ended up buying seventy five percent of the team um, about a year later, or nine months later, something like that. What was it like working? with Jensen and Rubens leading into that first test, and then the one two, which I imagine was a pinch me moment for the entire team coming from again the the darks uh, the darkest depths of winter of going how are we going to fund this to yeah good news story how are we even here were they really just all in to begin with or was there trying to convince them I mean Rubens is known for just being such a genuinely lovely and hardworking guy and of course. He was afforded some victories with with Braun GP as well. First time in five years, I think the European Grand Prix that he took victory for. Was it hard to convince them? And if it wasn't, was it just so rewarding for you to see the success that they ended up having as a result of what happened? Yeah, it, it, it was initially. I mean, they didn't think they had a drive. Would have a drive. There, there is no doubt that they thought. But yeah, they didn't believe we were going to survive. I don't think, and probably. <laughs> In our heart of hearts, we knew it was going to be tricky, but we were kind of give it our best shots. I mean, I, I I think, you know, being very logical as I am on these things, you know, they didn't have anywhere else to go probably at that time of the season anyway. <laughs> so, um, you know, yes, you know, we had to persuade them that they were going to have a drive. But on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm sure that they were sensible enough to have a look around and probably found that, you know, we were probably only the only person in town anyway. So, uh, uh, and that was probably went yeah, there was a combination of loyalty i i, I think and i've worked with certainly with jensen for a long time and rubens have worked with 
Ross for a long time. And so we, we all got on well um, together. But th- th- there was some persuading required. But um, uh, when we did the, the, the first shakedown at, at a dreadful um, day at Silverstone where the weather was god-awful and, um, you know, we literally, you know, had, had the car on the short circuit and, uh, you know, the, the, the guys were in a, you know, a, a put-you-up with, you know, terrible winds and, uh, you know, rain and it was just, just dreadful. But, you know, the car showed its paces, you know, right from the stars. I mean, and, you know... These guys, and, and Jensen was driving the car on that particular day, these guys are so good. I mean, the reality is, which, um, you know, probably isn't sort of broadcast in the outside world, you know, when when you do your first test in a Formula One car, sadly, within about five laps, you know where you are. And, it, and, and, if, and if it's working and it feels good, then probably, you know, you're in for a, a, a decent year. If the thing is difficult, um, and, and they can tell in three laps, you know, um, uh, you've either made a, a, a terrible mistake somewhere, which can be easily rectified, and with the computer um, and data that you've now got, that's pretty unlikely. Or, you know, if it doesn't work, frankly, it's probably never going to work. And, uh, you know, m- my suspicion is that's the position Mercedes are in this year is that, you know, that car hasn't got one thing wrong with it. It's got fundamental issues with the the design route that they've gone down. And, uh, you know, I hope I'm proven wrong. And it would be great to see Mercedes alongside Ferrari and Red Bull competing for the championship. But uh, sadly, I think that's uh, unlikely. I think there's some, you know, probably major um muck-ups in the the strategy as opposed to detailed design um but when you get it right yeah oh and in 2004 when we we were second in the championship uh, miles behind ferrari i have to say second in the championship sounds very glamorous but i think we got half the points of ferrari and everyone else equally was was pretty dreadful so we did well but only relatively so we knew right from the start but we didn't really understand why the car was good uh, which meant that the following year we really couldn't replicate it. But, um, you know, once the car went well at that first test and then we went to uh, Spain for the last test against our, our competitors and we blew them away. If I remember rightly, we were like a second and a half quicker than anyone else out of the, you know, w- without any uh, practice beforehand. And we were trying to go slow. I mean, uh, uh, the, the, it was kind something of, you hear it was, often when we're talking it was, about Formula it was, One. It was hilarious. It was hilarious. It was a hilarious situation because you know we were so quick that you know we were trying to uh, you know make sure the car wasn't running particularly light because we knew this was going to be a red rag to a bull. That uh, you know these guys coming from nowhere, you know, and we were going to and we had this double diffuser device which. Uh, but a couple of other teams had the same device, uh, Williams and Toyota. But our, our execution was somewhat better. But we knew we were going to come under attack for, you know, because the others didn't have it. And uh, you know, no one likes, you know, they didn't think up the idea. We did, and and yeah, you know, the other teams were, and they also twigged fairly quickly that this wasn't something they could do in five minutes. So they were going to be especially aggressive as it turned out in the courtroom 
um, trying to prove that we'd done something which was illegal, which, uh, you know, was, was, was wrong. And, you know, it had been checked out with the FIA before and uh, it was legal. And the courts, you know, despite the better efforts of Red Bull and Ferrari and what have you, uh, you know, it was, it was perfectly legal. There's some high highs in there and some low lows, moments of absolute elation, but also really testing your resilience. Is there a favourite F1 moment for you? Um, my favourite F1 moments is, you know, and, and after you know, a lot of you know, just great success, and you, you, it's easy to point out, you know, first and second in Monaco um, were uh, – dramatic and huge achievement. But I think when you're on the inside, it's the little things which, um, you know, and, and the, the, the Monaco experience was um, uh, special, just really almost for one moment, um, uh, which happened actually the, the evening after the race. I mean, when you, when you win in Monaco, um, you know, obviously it's super special, but it's even more special in this only the, Winning drivers, winning driver and constructor gets invited to um, a ball um, as as the guests of um, the royal family there in the sporting club. So you know it's black tie, and so uh, the, the the amusing thing about this is that uh, you know, even if you think you're going to win, you you don't take your tuxedo because <laughs> clearly that is you know that's a uh, you know going to be no, yeah, superstition would yeah. say you know you can't count on it so even if you think you're going to win and you know we, we obviously were in a good good chance you know you don't take your, your your tucks with you so the first thing which is rather amusing is when you do win you know at sort of five o'clock in the afternoon um the first thing you have to do is is rush around trying to borrow <laughs> you know and I, I i had a kind of a friend of a friend who uh, uh lived there and you know i ended up kind of borrowing a, the black tie gear from this guy who happened to be about five inches shorter than me oh, so, you know so you know first first you turn up in your penguin suits to this mo- the most glamorous possible occasion um you know wearing someone else's clothing which doesn't really fit and then you know they they you know b- 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 clap you into the ballroom with uh, um with albert and charlene and um uh, but the the, the 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 real moment that really sticks in my mind is that uh, you know it's just the most glamorous place you can possibly imagine, and at at the the end of the meal, you know silently the roof opens, and uh, and then there is a most magnificent firework display um, over the uh, over the bay, and I remember you know Jensen sitting there like a five year old looking um, you know com- at the fireworks but looking completely lost and, and 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 prince albert very kindly you know kind of put his hand on his arm and just said jensen this is for you which i thought was just a really oh, incredibly nice special. um nice moment and my, my other favorite um actually again was one of those kind of you know momentary things but uh, when we you know managed to hire michael schumacher um the 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 first test was at silverstone with michael in the car and and when when you you all got your headphones on and uh, you know ear defenders and what have you and uh, when when a car's about to come into the uh, the garage usually the team manager is telling the crew um, uh, uh, you know when the car's about to arrive 
and and Ron, the, the team manager, you know, uh, came over the radio and and said, uh, you know, very very simply, you know, Michael Schumacher, thirty seconds, so thirty seconds till he enter the pit lane. And just at that moment, it's just like, oh my laws, you know, after all this sort of time and efforts, um, you know, we've got Michael Schumacher you know, one of the clearly, you know, greatest Formula One drivers ever driving our car from those sort of very lowly beginnings. And uh, it kind of that kind of, you know, just brought it home of, you know, how far you come. And sadly, you know, we never, well, I never, obviously Ross won a lot, but uh, you never win a, we never won a race with Michael. But uh, just the mere fact that we, we, we had him driving for us was, uh, was super special. So, uh, you know, all those glamorous things that you happen to you may be, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, the things that people see aren't necessarily the things that kind of almost mean the most. We hear a lot of stories and interviews with, with many people, including Ross, about just how Michael was. But from your point of view, how did, how did it change? Obviously, a great, absolute great of the sport has just entered. But how did he interact with the team? How did he interact with you? What, were, what was the motivation? Because by all accounts, he helped set up that car for significant success with Lewis and Nico for many, many, and Valtteri with for many, many years thereafter. Yeah, my, Michael you know, was, was never my hero, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I'm, I'm English, so... Uh, you know the, uh, the the dastardly German, uh, you know, driving, uh, you know, Damon Hill off the track and uh, getting up to all sorts of uh, things. So you know, I, I, to be honest, I wasn't a Michael Schumacher fan as a as as a fan. But and, and you know, and the day he announced his retirement was almost a, you know. Uh, you, you know, I remember watching, uh, you know, from whatever Grand Prix it was, watching on the screens and him doing his, his interview and being clearly quite dis- distressed. Um, on the one hand, feeling, you know, sorry for him that he was going and obviously everything he'd achieved. But on the other hand, it was, you know, almost thank God he's gone because uh, you know, the rest of us have now got a chance. <laughs> you know. But, you know, when, when the, the first thing about working with Michael is, you know, a lot of this has been uh, spoken about, but uh, to see it firsthand was, uh, you know, even after all those world championships and even though we didn't give him a car, which was good enough for, for his level of talents, um, the, the, the hard working side of this is, is the thing that, you know, the, the three or four hours of, of debrief after a race. So you've got this, this guy who's worth hundreds of millions, who's achieved everything but even then, still willing when you've not done very well in the, uh, the the race to sit there for three or four hours. So that level of, um, and also the, um, his his ability to draw, draw a team together. And, I, and I'll give you one little kind of anecdote on that. Uh, you might remember there was a, a, a volcano that exploded, and all the, the world's airlines were. Uh, you know, grounded, and we were in in, in Asia at the time, and uh, you know, scrabbling to uh, to get back to, uh, uh, to 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 Europe for the for the next race, and we eventually all got on a plane, which actually went into uh, to Switzerland where Michael lived, and uh, you know, we did have a connecting flight, but it was this was like sixty plus members of the team, and uh, but there was like four hours gap between landing in uh, in Switzerland and uh, Zurich, I think, if I remember rightly. Um, and then getting the flight to London. So, you know, Michael said, you know, come round to my house. You know, so 
you know, a bus was organised. We went around to Michael's house and, uh, you know, did a bit of temping bowling and uh, what have you. And then, you know, time came to go back to the airport. And, you know, quite reasonably, you know, we'd been away. We'd, uh, you know, uh, but instead of sort of waving goodbye at his front door, you know, Michael, you know, jumped on the bus with uh, everyone else and, uh, you know, made sure we all got to the airport and, uh, you know, waved everyone off and what have you. And, you know, that's just a sort of one small anecdote, but, you know, uh, his personal ability and, and his, Karina, his wife, and, uh, you know, the kids were around a lot and, you know, it makes it super, you know, uh, sad as to what's uh, subsequently happened. But, you know, lovely people, lovely family. Um, and, um, you know, you, you really understood why he had been successful and it, you know, talent is one thing, but the thing that you, you've got to bring together is, is talent and, um, uh, hard work. You know, there is no substitutes for, for hard work. And, you know, when you get close to these incredibly successful people, it doesn't matter whether in business or whether they're, you know, on the sports side and what have you, you know, sad to say for people who think they can wing it, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of hard work. His relationship, it seemed, with in Mercedes with Seb at Red Bull, seems to now be replicated with Seb and Mick. How good is that for you as someone who went 10-pin bowling in Michael Schumacher's house and, yes, with Karina and the kids around, but now seeing Mick's own journey and progression through the sport, now being a fan and, and outside of the Formula One space in that sense what's that like for you because you've got some schumacher family history there yeah i mean i've seen it a few times in fact rather nicely um of of the 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 people who are the the class of the field um you know helping others and in rallying you know we had tommy uh, mackinan drive for us alongside pedder at uh, subaru and you know tommy that particular year had a huge accident uh early in the year, you know, went end over end about six times, uh, um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, hurt himself, hurt himself in, uh, in, 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 in more ways than the public know in that, uh, in that particular accident, um, you know, you, you wear a, uh, um, a, a six point harness, you know, it's not like a, a road car, if you, but you wear crutch straps and, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure um, Tommy won't mind uh, me saying he um, he hadn't um, he hadn't positioned his um, his his bits correctly under you know um, between the belts. So <laughs> um, he he, um, he he suffered lots of man pain in the accidents, which uh, and you know yeah. and, 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 and was kind of pretty unwell in in, in many ways for a, a while afterwards. But you know he he. You know, clearly wasn't going to win the championship that year, and uh, you know he um, he uh, spent a huge amount of time and effort helping Pesa, and you know, and, and I thought that was uh, showed real class. And you know, Pesa won the world championship that year, and Tommy had, had um, you know really coached him, um, which was was brilliant to see. And even at the time, you know, clearly uh, Sebastian was was starting to be very successful with uh, when Michael was still driving and, you know, seeing that relationship at that time. And, you know, uh, uh, Sebastian, I don't know Sebastian overly well, but, um, you know, he's a proper person. And uh, the fact that he's now passing on that is, um, is class, you know, and it's, uh, 
you know, it's it's lovely to see. And um, you know, he he got that help from uh, from Michael, and the fact he's now re- returning the favour is uh, is is beautiful. So we might return to your story a bit and kind of continue on with that that journey. Um, ultimately, we get to a point: two titles won. Mercedes bought the team, and we've kind of effectively ended the the rescue mission, if we call it that. Presumably, this is the most committed, highest level of ownership of any kind of work project you've probably had. Was it hard to to sell and then to leave a team that you had been absolutely central to to saving? Uh, hard. Yes, but you you've got to be grown up about these things. Yeah. Um, you you can't sell something um, to somebody, especially you know, for a large amount of money, and say I'm now selling you this. You're giving me money, um, but I still want to play with it as if it was mine. I mean, that's just not realistic and grown up. So. You go into these things knowing things are are going to change, and it's a it's a transaction, and um, uh, and and things changed fairly dramatically. I mean, in in the course of a few years, we'd gone from a team where we were coaching the uh, the, the employees in Japanese etiquette, and it was a Japanese team, and then you know overnight we're a very English team with uh, with with myself and Ross and Jensen and. Uh, you know, obviously based in the UK, and then overnight, you know, we got two German drivers um, uh, with. Uh, well, I don't, know, don't know what Nico considers himself, but uh, Finnish, <laughs> Monegasque, uh, uh, the German. Um, but um, yeah, we've got two German drivers. We're owned by a German team. We're launching the car in uh, in Stuttgart. Uh, you know, as a as a silver arrow, and you know, but but. You know, we had the might of Mercedes Benz uh, behind us, um, and yeah, you know, and I have to be you know honest about this. You know, <clears throat> when you've owned the company yourself, you know, in two thousand and nine, when Ross and I wanted to make a decision, we sat in usually my office because I had a comfy sofa, and we'd make a decision and we'd have a cup of tea. And when things went wrong, you know, we'd sit there and have a cup of tea and say, we won't do that again. That was silly, wasn't it? But you didn't have to do a PowerPoint presentation. You didn't have to justify mm-hmm. it to anyone. And, you know, Ross said to me, even at Ferrari, even at the most successful days, you know, he had the sort of the, the weight of not only Ferrari, but also Italy on his shoulders. So every decision was, you know, going to be analysed left, right and centre. And he had to answer to it when it was just the two of us who had, you know, the, the absolute control of the company, you know, we didn't have to do any of that. It was just, you know, either we, we won together, we lost together. And so if it went wrong, then we just said, okay, well, we'll learn from that and move move on. And then when you go to a big corporate environment, although Mercedes, you know, were fantastic, you know, you've still got that. It it, it changes everything. You know, you, you're, you're spending time in, uh, you know, Germany, you know, asking for money and doing this and doing that and doing the other. And, uh, you know, once you're spoiled, it's difficult to go back. And I think we both realised that this wasn't going to be, you know, for the long run and they were going to do whatever they wanted to do with the company. And, you know, you're passing on the baton, really. I mean, I've been there 10 or so years. Um, Ross, obviously, less time than that. But, uh, you know, we're, we're, everyone parted on good terms. And I think it was one of those you know, deals of the century, really, in that uh, – um, you know they got a great team. I mean, Mercedes, and although it was a good amount of money in Mercedes-Benz terms, it was cheap. 
Um, that wasn't an expensive purchase for them. And if they take it over the periods and what they've done with it subsequently, it was uh, a you know a bargain. Um, so when when you know, we both we both left, uh, I think within a few uh, within the same twelve month periods, um, you know, it was on very good terms. I mean, it was just you know. You're going your way, you're going my way, and relations remain good. And uh, you know, Ola Kalanius, who uh, you know was was senior and involved in the Formula One program at that time, is now the big boss. And uh, you know, I you know he's he's a he's a great guy and doing a great job. But I know that yeah, if I sent him an email tomorrow, it would get a uh, you know a, a a reply. And I think uh, everyone came out of it you know, with um, with flying colours and it's great to see what they do subsequently. Nick, your experience is significant and as we've just spoken about, not only with motorsport as a whole but within Formula One, as you said, going from a Japanese team to an English team to a German team and, and really the staff probably not changing all that much, the core staff. You've met some very interesting characters, probably a, uh, a good thing to say. Was there anyone... Before we start really talking about McLaren Applied, is there anyone that really stands out as someone who was unusual or really interesting or someone that you're really glad that you met, maybe someone glad you maybe didn't meet, <laughs> to then give you this amazing breadth of experience to be able to lead this business? Oh, yeah, I, I, I could probably bore you for hours with, uh, you know, and I've been completely spoiled in terms of, uh, but, you know, people who, a, a complete standouts, but for very different reasons. Um, but add to your education. Um, you know, Jackie Stewart, I, I would single out. You know, and I was lucky enough to work with Jackie. Uh, you know, when I was in charge of Aston Martin, he was one of our directors. Um, and, and I've turned a number of times over the years to Jackie for, you know, what do you think about this, or can you help with that, or what have you? And um, you know, just attention to detail. Um, and, and again, just you know, hard working, you know, person who just just is, is completely honest, even even though he's uh, he's obviously getting on a bit now. Um, but you know, he was he was instrumental. One you know, which probably will will surprise people, maybe um, Tom Walkinshaw, um, who you know is now uh, passed away, but. Um, you know, uh, very checkered business backgrounds, and uh, you know the, the English courts had not very good things to say about his ability as a company director. But uh, you know, I was lucky enough to work with Tom. Uh, he provided engineering services to Aston Martin, so I worked with Tom for about three years, I guess it was. But again, you know, when you get close to people like that, those who you know criticise on the outside you know, really got no knowledge of, you know, really what they're criticising. And when you work with someone like that, the entrepreneurial ability, you know, the absolute determination to make things happen, you know, completely bullheaded, um, you know, just just bloody-mindedness about going about business and succeeding and then building, you know, what was at the time a, a great company. So, you know, I'd, 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 I'd certainly... Um, single out Tom, you know, working with people like Bernie Ecclestone, again, you know, checkers, you know, views from the, uh, the outside. But when you, when you get close to these people, it's really kind of pretty easy to see why they're so successful. And, uh, you know, just, just the, you know, in Ford, you know, as a big company man, I was probably considered to be, you know, relatively entrepreneurial within that environment. But when you get close to people like Bernie, 
you know, your class 101, you know, the, the, the risks from Dennis who built this place, uh, you know, it started as a, uh, you know, a mechanic on a team and then built a, a huge corporation um, taking massive risks. Um, um, you know, would I, if, if I'd have been Ron Dennis with a successful Formula One team, you know, started on you know, a car company, you know, probably not. I mean, uh, you know, maybe I knew too much about the car business and it's proven very difficult for McLaren over the years from time to time, but not a risk probably I would have taken. But these people are different calibre. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've been very, very fortunate, not just on the, the motorsport side, but also, uh, you know, within companies like Ford to be, you know, Jack Nasso was the, the big boss uh, of, of Ford for a long time, took me under his wing and what have you. So I've been lucky enough to be exposed to real global class you know it's sort of these people were you know in the case of jack you know they're the elon musk of their day really in in, in automotive terms and uh, when you when you when you work with people like that you uh, you learn one hell of a lot so you've got a pretty substantial history of sport and winning things generally um and then you've obviously handed over the baton as you as you said the mclaren applied opportunity what was so exciting about that to you that motivated you to come back into you know, ultimately the world of, of motorsport and technology? The, the, the thing about McLaren Applied is um, uh, the big attraction was untapped potential. Um, you know, until a year ago, it was part of McLaren Group. Um, uh, and, and there were clearly three parts of the Formula One team, which is clearly the most the, kind of the glam and high profile part, the road car business, um, and then Applied, which, you know, at various times in its history had been a pretty substantial company, you know, had at one stage about 700 employees. So this wasn't a, a small company. It, it shrunk, you know, over the last few years um, a bit. But, um, you know, the, the Applied had been, had benefited from being part of McLaren in very obvious ways, but it was also hampered because, you know, when there was a call for funds or resource or investments, um, it was competing against two things which were bigger and uh, much more high profile. And, uh, you know, the, the Formula One team is doing much better now, but it's had difficult times the last few years through the global financial crisis. Clearly, running a car company, especially one selling high-priced mid-engine uh, sports cars, is, is a tough gig. So, uh, you know, Applies um, had had tough times um, and, you know, was under-resourced and uh, had to, to cut back a lot. So, you know, when it was um, it, it was sold um, uh, about a year ago, um, that's given it wings. I mean, it's it it now can do, it can manage itself. It can invest in what it wants to invest in. It can have, you know, it's got its own shareholders who are very determined that it should, uh, you know, get back to for, to a former glories. But on top of that, it's got all this technology which has been gained from McLaren Group over over a couple of decades. Um, and and uh, so the big attraction to me, clearly the, the opportunity to work for McLaren uh, or a, a part of the McLaren company is is a big attraction unto itself. We've got fantastic facilities, um, uh, w w which you know, in some cases are shared still with, with McLaren. Our production facility is within the uh, the MTC, the technology centre as, uh, as, as we call it. Um, so that's where our um, a lot of our electronics are are physically made alongside because a lot of them are for Formula One. So they're made alongside the uh, uh, the Formula One team over there. 
Um, you know, we're in about three miles away. The majority of us in a very nice office block uh, in uh, in Woking, Victoria Gates, which is uh, is a pretty cool place to work. And um, and we've got the technology, so we've we've got the uh, uh, all of it. Um, even though a lot of it now is being applied outside motorsport, is motorsport uh, derived? And we've been able to say to people, look, you know. It's it's like Braun GP again. This is like there's everything to play for. I mean, we've 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 got uh, we've we've got all the investment in the same way as Braun had the the wind tunnel and the uh, uh, the the machine shop and the uh, the test rigs and all the other stuff. We've got a lot of that because it's been paid for and it's been developed over a long period of time by by McLaren Group. Um, but now we've got the freedom to deploy us and uh, and we've got access to to money. Um, clearly our investors uh, not only had the money to, to purchase the company, but they've got money to to invest. Um, you know, we're sitting here at the moment with uh, just under 50 vacancies uh, of, of people that we'd like to hire to to grow the company. And um, the, the owners who are a, a venture capital company with a lot of big backers who have invested in that, um, you know, I have the same sort of motorsport entrepreneurial mindset. Um, so, you know, when we have meetings with the shareholders, you know, the engineers and people here are, you know, saying we'd like to do this, we'd like to do that. You know, myself and the shareholders sit there and say, yes, yeah. just go do it. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't need, you know, a 50 page presentation you don't need, uh, you know, we, we haven't got any bureaucracy here. If uh, if uh, the, the 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 boss of the venture capital company and I say yes, they just go do it, and that's that's kind of it. And uh, you know, some of it will be great, and some of it will, will be wrong. And if it's wrong, we'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll change our mind and uh, you know not do that anymore, just as uh, Ross and I did. And uh, if it works, we'll put more money and effort into it. So you know, we've 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 now. Uh, we can control our own future and, um, you know, we can uh, delegate responsibility and say to people, what do you need to do the job? You know, and um, they, they need X, Y, or Z. And then we say, fine, here it is. Go deliver. Yeah. And um, uh, I think people are enjoying that. You mentioned that there is an entrepreneurial spirit, I think, within motorsport culture generally, um, but there's also everything else that comes with motorsport. Um, what does that bring to business, as particularly though a technology-focused business? I, I, I think, firstly, um, it brings big brains, um, and, and there is no doubt that you know having the name McLaren and um, being where we are and having that history helps attract people. So I think I think that is clearly you know from the brand point of view it 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 it's very helpful, but I think more than that it's the um, the mentality, and you know, good people want to work with good people. I mean, if you're good, um, you can earn the same money pretty much anywhere. You know, if you're a great Formula One engineer, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you're working for Ferrari or Red Bull or Haas or what have you. Probably you're going to be paid much the same. Why do you want to work for a better team? Because they've got better people and you're going to be successful. And I think it's, pardon me, I think it's the same here that we've got some really, really first class engineering people and we've got a, 
you know, we are an engineering company um, and we make decisions quickly. And, you know, when people come to us with an idea, you know, we have a tendency to say, yes, you know, kind of give it a go and um, let's, let's see where we go. So it's that quick um, decision-making, you know, on, on a pit wall, sometimes you're faced with the requirement to make a decision in two seconds. And so I think, you know, myself and uh, others around here are used to, you know, taking a few risks. I mean, it's not silly risks because, you know, when you've got great people, which which we have, um, they don't come to you with silly ideas. They come to you with well-thought-through ideas, which make it easy to say, you know, make a decision on. And um, so I think that side of it, we don't want to lose. And, uh, you know, maybe McLaren Applies, you know, three, four, five years ago, you know, went off and, and did a whole bunch of other interesting things and, and lost a bit of focus on motorsports. But, you know, we're now in the position where, you know, everything we do is in some way motorsport related. You know, we've got the what I call the, the core motorsport business, which is, um, you know, the, the engine control units and the sensors. And, and I think people on the outside might not realize those go onto every Formula One car. So, you know, uh, the, 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 whether it be a Ferrari or a McLaren, or a Mercedes, or a, 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 a Bahas, or a Alfa Romeo, that they're all using, you know, um, engine control units which are um, supplied you know, from us, built, uh, you know, just down the road at the uh, the MTC. Um, and I'm proud, whilst touching what at the same time, to say that uh, the the engine controllers which are used in every Formula One car, I think we're up to getting close to about one and a half million racing kilometers in in formula one without a failure um i'm tempting fate by saying that but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh you know and and so they're, they're all using our kits mm-hmm. and uh you know the fuel pump driver on every formula one car is from us um you know lots and lots and lots hundreds if not you know tens of thousands of uh, of aerodynamic sensors and sensors which are measuring you know the length of the inlet trumpets on uh, you know the the the, the data logging the um, analytical tool all the, the the graphs that you're seeing um, you know on the pit wall or many of them uh, are being being uh, analysed by a system called Atlas which uh, again is from here so we've got a massive core of um, motorsport expertise but then that's been spun off. Um, into our other two uh, business units, which are, uh, you know, one of them's in mainstream automotive and, uh, you know, is, is involved heavily with electrification. Um, and the other one is um, uh, probably bizarrely to the outside world, um, works in the uh, the train and soon to be the bus industry. So we're, uh, we're using F1 technology on uh, West Coast mainline here in the UK you know, if you use the Wi-Fi, um, then you're using Formula One technology to uh, communicate with your uh, with your pals. I'm sure that is a very new um, concept to kind of wrap your head around for a lot of people. In fact, there is Formula One technology in the train that they might be on or the bus that they're riding. Talking about the future of McLaren Applied, where's it going? Well, you know, we're going to continue to develop in those in those areas, um, and, and we don't want to deviates uh you know off into all sorts of, of of technologies there's a lot of interesting things out there but you know you you realize in formula in formula one you know you've you've got a, a car where you can change uh anything 
but the reality is it comes down to uh, to, to engine power, um, how you use the tyres, and um, clearly the aerodynamics and the aerodynamics. So you can spend a lot of money on all sorts of other stuff, which, you know, possibly, you know, as I said earlier, we did in the Honda days and Toyota did the same, spend a lot of money on a whole bunch of stuff, which doesn't make any difference. And it kind of diverts you. You know, we want stuff here, which is, uh, you know, core to our business. So we're not going to be going off doing uh, skateboards or cycling helmets or anything, uh, you know, like that. So, you know, what, 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 what we want to do is to take that core of motorsport technology. We want to be very, innovative in, uh, in in how we think um, and we want to apply that in the areas of the world which are developing and clearly the biggest of, of that by a country mile is uh, electrification mm-hmm. and um, you know we're heavily involved in that already but this is not just electrification of cars um, you know it's it's drones and it's boats and it's uh, air- aircraft and it's uh, you know, pretty much anything which which moves these days, firstly, is is ultimately going to be powered by electric. You know, not not hundred percent, but you know, a large portion of um, those things will be uh, will be powered by electric motors, and they all need data transfers. And we're we're very expert at, uh, at transferring data in a very alien environment. You know, a Formula One car probably has. Uh, you know, maybe 15,000 streams of data that are coming off it real time in a tremendously difficult environment of the car going around the circuit at very high speed with lots of other communications on, on a Sunday, especially, uh, you know, we're pretty pretty good at doing that. So, uh, you know, making Wi-Fi work a little bit better on a train, which is doing 120 miles an hour and going under bridges and, uh, you know, trees and so on and so forth, um, you know, is difficult, but we can, we can use the same... Uh, the same, the same stuff, the same ideas, the same, uh, the same thinking. So it, 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 it's all about breakthroughs in performance is really what it comes down to is using, you know, that very high powered technology, skilled people to, uh, to apply our thinking to other areas and, and making, uh, as I say, breakthroughs. Nick, it sounds like it's a very exciting future and I love it that you said, you know, this is like Braun GP again. We've got something to be able to make. Everything is to play for. Uh, So we can't wait to see what McLaren does. Similarly, I'm sure, in that level of success like Braun GP did. But, mate, thank you so much for spending some time with us and sharing those wonderful stories. Thank you very much indeed. Well, a massive thank you to Nick Fry for having a chat with us. Freya, I was so glad we got to find out where that pound is and who it actually belongs to still. It's a fantastic story to hear straight from him and what an interesting journey to where he is now with McLaren Applied and amazing vision for the future for this business as well. Well, that's the future for this business, but the future for this podcast is we've got our transport episode. Pablo Garcia and rail partner Michael Steiger from Huber and Zuna will be joining us on the episode. We can't wait for you to hear it, so make sure you subscribe to Inside McLaren Applied and leave a rating or review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Freya, I'll see you then. See you then, James. <laughs>